welcome to the New Books and Poetry podcast. I am your host, Jen Fitzgerald. I'm really excited for our guest today. I own many of his books and have literally been hypnotized at his readings. Kevin Prufer is the author of six books of poetry and the editor of four anthologies, the most recent of which are Churches, Four-Way Books 2014, In a Beautiful Country, Four-Way Books 2011, National Anthem, Four-Way Books 2008, New European Poets, Grey Wolf Press, 2008, with Wayne Miller. Until Everything is Continuous Again, Essays on the Work of W.S. Merwin, Word Farm Editions, 2012, with Jonathan Weinert, and Russell Atkins on the Life and Work of an American Master, Master, Aung San Masters, 2013, with Michael Dumanis. An anthology he has edited with Martha Collins, Into English, an anthology of multiple translations, is forthcoming from Grey Wolf in 2015. Proofer is also editor-at-large of Pleiades, a journal of New American Writing, co-curator of the Unsung Masters series, and professor in the creative writing program at the University of Houston. Among Proofer's awards and honors are three Pushcart Prizes, two Best American Poetry Selections, numerous awards from the Poetry Society of America, the Prairie Schooner Strauss Award, two William Rockhill Nelson Awards, and fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Lannan Foundation. Born in 1969 in Cleveland, Ohio, Kevin Proofer received his undergraduate degree from the College of Letters at Wesleyan University. He has graduate degrees from Hollins University and Washington University. He is married to artist and literary critic Mary Halab. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about you before the poems, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. So what was a Cleveland, Ohio childhood like in the 70s? <laughs> wow. Uh, that's broad enough for you. <laughs> that's pretty broad. Um, uh, it was uh, it was fine and suburban, and, um, you know, I didn't really have anything else to compare it to. So, um, you know, we lived we lived in uh, Cleveland Heights near, near the sort of place where Cleveland Heights becomes Cleveland. And, um, uh, you know, I had many brothers and a sister and... My father was an archaeologist. Um, oh wow! Yeah, yeah, he was an interesting guy. He was a, a German who came over, who got out of Germany just just after the war ended, and um, sort of lived for a while in India, and wound up in the United States uh, studying Hopewell archaeology. So, uh, you know, I would see him on weekends and with my mother during the week, and. Uh, you know, we spent a lot of time on weekends variously in, in bars or uh, at archaeological sites. He, he did Hopewell Archaeology, the, the sort of mound makers in, in Ohio. Wow. D- now, did you have any artifacts around the house? Oh, they were all over the place, oh, yeah. Oh, goodness. Like, why? Well, I mean, I probably, it's going to make him sound less professional, though he really was a, quite, quite <laughs> professional. He was a professor at, at the university, but um, he did a lot of his work from home. So I, I you know, we always had pots and um, stone tools, flint tools all over the house. For, for a time, we had human skeletal remains in the basement, which is wow. probably not something he should have been working on at home. But, <laughs> uh, but, but you know, it, I, I remember it caused him some trouble with house cleaners once who didn't know what to make of the <laughs> skulls uh, in the basement. But, um, but uh, yeah, he, he was a, he was, he, he did a lot of, he did a lot at home. So did that freak you out as a child to know that there were skeletal remains in your home? No, no. <laughs> I mean, again, I kind of grew up with it. I, when, when we would go to his office uh, or his lab, there were um, shelves of skeletal remains. I mean, one of the one of the photographs that I grew up with around the house in scrapbooks and for a while on a bullet board was a picture of my father with a shelf behind him lined with a hundred skulls. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure this is exactly formative for me. It's just sort of, it, it was just a, a fact that seemed normal to me. And, and I later found out when friends would visit that it was not normal. <laughs> well, that might answer a future question I have about the uh, okay. landscapes that you create in your poetry, but we'll get there later. Um, so you said you have um, a few brothers and a sister. 
Yeah, well, I, I came from a sort of complicated family. My mother uh, remarried um, after she divorced my father. My father remarried, and everybody brought kid, various kids. I, I have two uh, half-brothers uh, and a full brother who has also become an archaeologist um, and is, is a professor in New Mexico and a sister and um, and a stepbrother. So That's a big family. You're a big family, yeah. Um, so now, when did you realize that you wanted to write poetry or that what you were writing was poetry? Oh, uh, you know, uh, pretty late, I, I think. Um, I, I didn't, I mean, I think I had the kind of background that was good for becoming a poet. And I, I, I don't mean anything strange, like, you know, I mean, I mean, I, but I was interested in lots of things briefly, if you know what I mean, I sort know. of became obsessed with one subject and then another completely different one and sort of moved around in college and finally kind of majored in this college of letters, which ended up being a mishmash of a major in German and European literature and history and philosophy. Um, and then I, I became a journalist briefly after college and uh, worked in DC and didn't like that. And, you know, I was, I read there was a period where I was very unhappy in Washington DC and trying to write a novel at night and work during the day and poetry hadn't really entered my mind that much. I'd written a little bit of it. And, um, and, uh, a friend of mine just said, why, why are you, why are you doing this? You know, um, why are you so unhappy and making so little money? And I mean, there are lots of ways you can make little less money and be happy. Like, <laughs> um, and, and she helped me, uh, get into that Holland's writing program where I spent nine months Initially thinking I would be writing fiction, but, but switching over to poetry almost immediately. Really? You know what did it? It was a poetry class. Um, the first real poetry class I ever took was in graduate school, and it was a course on the romantic poets mm -hmm. with a uh, professor named Eric Trathaway, who's the father of Natasha Trathaway. Oh, wow. Uh, and he was a, just a marvelous teacher, and he... And I, I had become interested in poetry anyway, but I hadn't thought of it. I couldn't have told you Keats from Wordsworth. And um, and that class just uh, opened my eyes, I think, to the possibilities for poetry as a way of communicating very complex and often um, contradictory ideas simultaneously. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've had a similar experience uh, with poetry yeah. where I had these disparate obsessions that I would move, you know, one from the next. And then um, I didn't figure out that I wanted to be a poet until I was convinced I was going to write nonfiction. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so from where do you write? What, what is the impulse? Um, you know, I started as a story writer uh, and and. Um, and realized, I think, at a certain point that I wasn't really that good at, at that. But the impulse for me is always, or almost always, a narrative impulse, which I know is kind of uncool right now. It, it feels, you know, in the way that the hemlines are always rising and falling in poetry, that, um, you know, some sort of modes of poetic thought are in fashion. And I'm, I'm not sure narrative is <laughs> is the thing right now. But it, for me, it's the thing. I, when I'm sitting down to write, I always begin by asking myself what, what would happen in this particular situation, you know, mm -hmm. put this person in this situation and then this other thing happened. Um, but those are the beginnings of most of my poems. And, um, and, you know, part of that came from, you know, my first book was really terrible. It was the book I was writing in Southern Virginia and then in graduate school. And um, it didn't get very good reviews. I shouldn't say it was terrible. It wasn't good. And, um, but it was very autobiographical. And, and at a certain point, when I was beginning to work on my second book, I thought, what would happen if I just decided not to write about myself again, you know, ever again? And, uh, and when I did that, it seemed like the world of things that were, were not me was so much larger than the world of things that was me. Yeah. <laughs> that, um, it, it really was helpful. It was helpful and it was helpful to begin to think that poetry isn't necessarily or, shouldn't maybe be a way of telling true stories. I don't, I don't know why we, we say that, you know, poetry ought to be true stories and fiction, short fiction ought to be made up stories. I, I kind of love the idea of merging the sort of will to make things up um, and invent plots and characters with 
you know, the tools that poetry gives you, the measure of the line and, and the, the sort of musical choices that you get to make when you're writing a poem that you don't get to make when you're writing a story, at least not as much. Mm-hmm. Those are the very things that drew me to your work was the embedded narrative and the way that you can layer them. Um, it really is you know, brilliant, and we'll get to hear some of that when you read a few of your poems. Um, did you find that when you branched out in the way that allowed you to um, detach from the real that you were able to re-enter kind of the autobiographical in a more honest or, um, I guess, with a wider view? Maybe. I mean... Um... I'm hesitant to even think of them as in any way autobi- autobiographical, but I think that it helped me engage with another question that I think you're sort of um, hedging around, maybe, which was um, getting an idea the idea of what truth is. You know, and I th- always felt like poetry. I mean, I have friends who really strongly disagree with this, but I always felt, at least for me, that poetry is a kind of a communication between a writer and the world. Uh, or a writer, I like to think maybe the, a writer and people who aren't yet born or something like that. And, and you're trying to tell a kind of a truth when, oh, when you're writing a poem. And some of those truths are, um, maybe literal truths and some of those truths are larger truths. And the larger truths are what I'm kind of interested in. And I kind of draw whatever, I think I kind of draw whatever I can from, from fiction and, my own life maybe a little bit um, to tell those larger truths. But autobiography is really, I, I feel it's very subservient it to everything else. It is, absolutely. And and I, I love what you're saying about this truth because it, it is something that I was hinting towards because um, sometimes it's, it's hard to put into words that which we seek to do with poems because it is so much bigger than us. It's bigger than the world. It's, you know, um, notions and ideas that go back as long or as far back as time, sure. um, you know, the basics of why are we here? What are we doing? What happens when we're not here anymore? Like, how can we make the best of our time here? What do we have to do with other people? Um, I think that you deal with a lot of that in your work. Um, churches, I find, is um, even more broad. Um, I loved In a Beautiful Country and National Anthem, and they definitely, those two collections seem to zero in, um, maybe on an American experience or a more centralized experience, but the poems in this new collection, although the lens is sometimes tighter on, you know, a certain speaker or a, a narrative or a specific instance, its reach is much wider. Oh, good. Thanks. I'm trying <laughs> for that. <laughs> I'm thinking of the, the two previous books as the sort of closing of a trilogy of, of books of poems about America okay. and American history. And uh, trying to stop doing that a little bit with churches. It's really hard to stop doing something once you've done something for three books to say, all right, now we're, now we're through. It's kind of scary. And um, anyway, I'm glad. I'm glad it seemed different. It did. I mean, you know, as much as I loved the first two, I, I, I loved the departure in churches. Um, and also, you know, you edit a lot of anthologies. You have your seventh is forthcoming. Um, is this something that you seek out or did, did they find you? Some of them find me, and some of them seek me out, uh, and some of them I find. I don't know. Uh, I, I really love the idea. I, I think that editing, uh, editing is a kind of editing anthologies, can be a kind of important. I think public service or, or sort of service to poetry to 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 bring to bring readers to authors who might otherwise slip away. Mm-hmm. That, that's always been the focus of my anthology editing is trying to uncover the work of writers who 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 otherwise you know who's, who's I don't know I like to think of this whose minds might vanish um, with Wayne Miller and Fong Nguyen we, I run this um, uh, and Kate Nuremberg uh, we run this Unsung Masters series together which is a, a whole book series devoted to bringing back to print the work of long out of print authors um, which we then publish with accompanying essays on why their work ought to be read, mm-hmm. what they could bring to the conversation. So, yeah, I love doing that kind of thing. Yeah, I actually, um, one of my pastimes, because when I feel isolated here on the island, I will uh, YouTube poets who I don't think I'll ever get to hear read. And before I had even met you, I was YouTubing you. <laughs> and um, <laughs> in one of your readings, you had mentioned Dunstan Thompson. Yeah. And, um 
I, you know, I, I did as much research as I could on the person afterwards. There wasn't much that I could find, but you had read one of his poems at your reading. And, um, I just wanted to thank you for connecting, you know, bridging that gap. I think is really important, especially when poets go, um, out of print to, to do that. So I, I really appreciate it. Oh, good. I'm glad you found Dunstan Thompson. He was such a strange, strange American poet, you know, a, a gay World War II GI who awesome. wrote, yeah, they were wonderful, harrowing, homoerotic, violent war sonnets. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, and it's such a strange, you know, and then he vanished in about 1950, um, and turned and sort of, uh, D.A. Uh, Powell and I kind of rediscovered him also through his later devotional Catholic, um, sort of religious, often religious, not always, but often religious poetry that he never did publish after about 1950. But but the first poetry, the war poetry and the, the very harrowing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And somebody who was easy to, who could easily have slipped away, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, his, his output was small and his, and his sensibility and style, strange. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Out mainstream. <laughs> Um, I, I had a, an experience like that when, you know, because I, I fell in love with uh, Wilfred Owen from uh-huh. his canonical piece. But then when I, uh, you know, bought his collected, the little that they had parsed together from letters and um, fragments, yeah. I found this. Um, he was an amazing poet and he was so modern for somebody who was writing at the turn of the century. And it, it was refreshing. It was wonderful. And, and I wish that more of his uh, his work was known other than, you know, Dulcea Decorum. Yeah, yeah, he's an amazing writer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that whole generation, that whole generation of World War One poets just are astonishing. Agreed. Sassoon, is I love Siegfried Sassoon. <laughs> um, actually, this is a good transition because um, I noticed that with the World War One poets, that there's a departure from from form, but uh-huh. with your work, I find a return to form, and and I really enjoy poems where I can trust the poet enough to sit with a piece and unwrap the layers of form and prosody and even metrical variances. And I have found you to be one of the poets um, that do this, and I'm curious as to what drew you in. To the, the sort of formal questions? Um, yes, because I, I know that you pay a lot of, t- a lot of attention to prosody and meter um, in your work, and, and it's hidden. You can't really see it unless you, like, unless you scan your poems, but it, there's, there's intention there, and it's not something, it's not an impulse that you see many modern poets, you know, moving towards. So I was curious as to what compels you. Well, I, I, I have believed that one of the, the, the tools that poem has, or that a poet has when a poet is writing a poem, and, and he, he doesn't have her, she doesn't have as much writing fiction, maybe, maybe a little bit, but not as much is uh, the, t- uh, the ability to make a kind of music. Um, and music, you know, by which I mean sort of rhyme and meter and rhythm and um, the, the, the beautiful sort of pauses at the end of a poetic line or the larger pauses between stanzas, that, that this music-making at its best, when it's really working, has a kind of an articulatable meaning. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. that, that music means things, even if there aren't words attached to it. And um, you know, the song dun dun da 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 da. I mean, that means something. <laughs> you know, we can say it's happiness or circuses, or it draws to mind certain kinds of images and communicates certain kinds of meanings. And that one of the things I think that uh, when poets are really working at their best, what they are aware of is that the music of their poem is communicating a meaning that might be in some ways in competition with what the words of the poem are communicating. Yes. <laughs> or that they have, or they go hand in hand, but in interesting ways. You know, there's nothing more boring, I think, than a dirge-like sonnet about death. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm overstating, but, um, but I think it's much more interesting when the music, uh, when the music of a poem is saying something somewhat different from what the words of the poem are saying. And then the job of the reader is to sort of, understand what's really going on here you know because both sides of the poem the music and the words are maybe not telling the whole truth but maybe together they're making a larger truth it's questions like that in writing poetry that i find to be exciting and yeah when i'm thinking about form you know after i've sort of hashed out some of the idea the ideas in the poem when i'm thinking about how the poem is working formally i'm i'm working on that 
I remember you speaking, and this was like a turning point in my poetry writing career, when you were talking about Anne Bradstreet's poem where she writes about the loss of her grandchild and then skips up the meter at the end to show doubt. It was like like some, like an explosion in front of my face had just taken place. And I, I mean, can you speak to that at all? Yeah, I love that poem. Um, yeah, that's, that's uh, you know, I don't want to... <laughs> I, I think that's a poem in which Anne Bradstreet is meditating, mourning, really, the loss of her granddaughter. It's a beautiful, beautiful poem. And she seems to be, you know, accusing herself in some ways of, of over-mourning the loss. That, that, you know, and asking this question, you know, when, when God, um, if everything that God does is for the good, how do we square that with the death of a, of a little girl? Mm-hmm. You know, and um, she wants to square it with. I mean, Anne Bradstreet's a smart woman, but you know, and she she realizes that she's living with the conflicts, and um, and she wants to square it. And the last line of the poem is feels at first like a shrug when she says, "It is by his hand alone that guides nature and fate." But when you listen to the way that line sounds and how it departs from the standard meter of the rest of the poem you begin to realize that what's really happening, I think, is that she's trying to say um, what she's saying there, that it's out of my hands, it's in God's hands, is not easy. Mm-hmm. It comes out haltingly, and maybe it's because it's too hard to say it. Or maybe it's because some part of her doubts it. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't. Uh, it, but, you know, I think what that line does is it expresses a kind of an ambivalence, a feeling strongly in multiple directions. And that's an ambivalence that any smart thoughtful person feels frequently i think life you know you you the the smart people i know feel feel in contradiction with with their other their other feelings and um or think in contradictions with their other thoughts and i often feel like the exercise of reading a really great poem like ann bradstreet's best work or emily dickinson's best work or even somebody like stevie smith is recognizing that there's no answer that's being offered to you the experience of reading these poems is the experience of listening in on a mind at work and a mind that's much smarter than my own. Absolutely. And that, that, that's that feeling that I love in, in, a, in Bradstreet and it's deeply associated with the music, with music. And I love that too. And it makes me wonder why the entire world is not obsessed with poetry. When yeah, things like that exist. <laughs> oh, it kills me. It kills me. People say things like, uh, Oh, you know, poetry is so inaccessible. <laughs> poetry. I, I, I kind of want to say, just loosen up. It's not that it's not that inaccessible. I mean, it's it's not like Anne Bradstreet isn't saying something that you probably haven't thought yourself, and in a way that's probably actually pretty clear. Um, I, I think the poetry's gotten a really shitty rap, um, and and part of it, I I love high, my high school teachers, and I love high school teachers, whatever. But I often feel like it's taught very poorly in high school that we're taught that poetry is a kind of a secret code, and you have to crack it. You know what I mean? Yes. And, and this symbolizes that, and that symbolizes this, and this symbolizes the other. We put all the symbols together, and then we have the answer. As if re- reading a poem is an exercise like writing a crossword or answering a crossword puzzle or something. But what that does is it alienates everybody in the world who doesn't like crossword puzzles. <laughs> and, um, so, first of all, um, secondly, it puts the author of the poem in contradiction with the reader of the poem, as if the author is trying to obscure meaning from the poem, and the reader is trying to break through that obs- ob- obscurity. And that's not how writers work. Writers don't try to obscure meaning from people. They try to communicate meaning to people. Um, yeah, and, and thirdly, it limits poetry to something that produces an answer, which poetry does not do. A crossword puzzle does that, but not poetry. You know, poetry thinks. Yes. And absolutely. it invites the reader to think. I think that maybe uh, more poets need to move away from uh, college professorships and think about teaching at the high school level. Hell yeah. I, I, I do think that's true, and I think that, or, or maybe, you know, Maybe there's something about poetry that we're handing down from classroom to classroom in college or in high school that's just not right. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. I, I had always thought that um, when it comes to high school students that they should teach poetry in reverse. They should start with who is writing now and move backwards to, to show them, you know, the shoulders on which they stood. Sure. I, it's a great idea. Or just or to sort of teach alternative poetries a little bit, too. I used to be sort of suspicious of, you know hip-hop in the classroom, but now I'm kind of not anymore, or um, spoken word as uh, as a way of um, of bringing bringing poetry to, to people. It, it, I've been listening to 
spoken, you know, quite a lot of spoken word music, thinking, what the, this is good, and this would be a great way to, to, you know, to, to start a conversation about poetry with, with students who are maybe a little intimidated by it, to say that there's so many modes and directions in which it can work, and, you know, the, the classroom book or the skinny volume of poems you buy at, you know, in the poetry section of a bookstore is one way, or two ways, but, um, but there are, that's two among many. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I agree. I think spoken word, um, it, it almost, you know, takes apart poetry and brings it to the very basics. And if you can get the kids interested in content and in the emotion behind it, the compulsion, then you can start showing them how the, the prosody affected the way that they understood that poem. And then, boom, everything is open. Yeah. I know I've been reading on Facebook this sort of controversy about this British prize judge who says who says thing about i can't remember now the you know poets have lost their audience it's the same old thing and i kind of want to say well i don't know i I don't think that's really true but i also think that maybe the conversation about what a poem is or how a poem works has been you know destructive to to readers um and it's a conversation that does often take place in the classroom Mm -hmm. absolutely i feel like we might be able to talk about that for for hours. Um, So you often create fantastical and dark worlds in your work, the kind that I imagine filmmakers being really jealous of. Um, How do these worlds come to you and do you inhabit them in some metaphorical way? Oh, I don't know. I, I I love movies. um, And I, my wife used to always joke that I would go, go to a movie and watch a lot of helicopters explode. And then, you know, on the screen and then come home and write and write a sort of movie like poem. And I, I do, I do think that movie making and poetry writing are very similar, um, art forms in many ways. I mean, their ability to shift scene, you know, um, their ability to have sort of simultaneously two, two different kinds of scenes happening at once that, 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 that filmmakers and poets sort of share that juggling, um, that juggling match, but maybe it's also just that, that sort of narrative interest and visual interest. I don't know. I do. I do. You're right. You're right. I mean, when I'm writing a poem about something fantastical or far out, I feel like I'm there for a little while. Yeah, you can tell. The reader can tell that you're definitely inhabiting this space in some way because the angles. Um, you have a, a poem in here where the speaker, the birds, I believe, the eagles, um, uh-huh. but the angles in which the speaker views the birds just shows like, you know, Kevin Prufer has sat under an eagle and imagined it's, you know, plumage for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know where that, I think that really comes from liking to write stories. I I don't know. Like I like to, you know, there's that Elliot line poetry is, is an escape from personality. Uh Um, I mean, I know this isn't how Elliot means it, but I, I, I like that line in isolation that, it's an escape from my personality into the personality of somebody else, yeah. <laughs> you know, and the more completely you can escape into somebody else's personality, the more interesting the, the storytelling becomes. And, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, you're right. That, that poor guy was raised <laughs> underneath an underneath enormous bird. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know where it came from. I was living out in the desert when I wrote that. I, I love that poem. Maybe a little too much sun. <laughs> um, so I think what what you're talking about a little bit is is negative capability, which yeah, yeah which makes sense if if your you know first introduction to poetry was the romantics. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, I I think that you definitely. I mean, if I know that we have a lot of um, critical essays on negative capability, but if somebody wants to see it in practice, we can direct them to your work for sure. Um, so not many people know, but you speak German fluently. Um, do you get much opportunity to use it in Houston? No, <laughs> it becomes less and less fluent. Um, I would say now I'm uh, fluent, yeah, kind of conversationally, happily fluent. And then, you know, if I'm reading a complicated novel, I get bogged down and I can't go further. So I don't know how that comes in on the fluency scale. Mm-hmm. I'm really great at reading a German detective novel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. I think learning another language though was helpful. Um, very, very helpful. I lived in Germany for a while, and um, really? and hearing, you know, you begin to. I mean, I, I think I learned a lot about grammar actually, for 
German. You know, I, I think I, I, I knew kind of instinctively where the semicolon went just from loving to read books when I was a kid, but having to articulate for myself what these different verb cases or verb tenses meant and were and, and you know, how, how, you know, having to articulate for myself how grammar works. Mm-hmm. Like really helpful, and, and that I learned. I did that having to study another language, but um, no, I don't. Get not a lot of German speaking in Houston. <laughs> do you uh, do you ever write poems in German? No, no, I translated some German, and um, and uh, when my I had a, a selected poems come out in uh, from a publisher in Germany in German, and did a bunch of readings in in Germany from you know reading the German versions of the poems. That was really strange. I'm sure. Really weird. <laughs> <laughs> Now, did you experience the poems differently when they were in, in German? Like the the translation, since you knew the language, did it alter your your work in some way? It did, yeah, it did. They, the poems sounded different, um, and they were the American. A lot of them were the American poems, and there's something odd about reading a poem that I imagine being written about what the American experience um, this, particularly during the Bush W George W. Bush years. Mm-hmm. Um, meant to Americans to suddenly be reading those same poems in German to Germans, it was it was a little vertigo inducing because it felt as though the poems were not being read to people to whom I meant them to be read. And when the when the context shifts and the audience shifts and the language shifts, the poems shift. But it wasn't bad. It wasn't a bad experience. It was just strange. Um, I can imagine. Um, would you mind reading a few pieces for us? Yeah, no, no problem. Sure. Um, I'd love to start with Where Have You Gone on page 23. Yeah. Um, sure. Where Have You Gone? In this story, while his parents slept below deck, their young son thought it would be fun to lower the life raft and float beside the ship. But he soon realized he couldn't keep up. The ship moved much more quickly than he'd thought, and his oars were light and would not catch the waves. And though he shouted, no one ran to the rails or raised the alarm. And then the ship was far ahead. Hello, he called as it shrank. In their cabin below deck, his parents dressed for dinner. I don't know, she said. You don't know, he said. I thought he was by the pool. Sorry. But when he didn't come for dinner... She grew concerned, and when the first mate saw the steel prongs where once the life raft was, the captain slowed the ship and radioed the shore. Hello, he called into the black night. Hello, he said softly now, lying on the raft's wet vinyl. Hello, and the waves lapped the sides, the raft turning on the current, so the stars spun slowly overhead. In a story she'd read, a boy rose into the sky in a hot air balloon and was never seen again. And the stewardess saw him to the gate, but he did not board the plane. Then the skylight caved beneath his feet, and down he fell into his parents' dinner party, so they stood by the shore holding a single flipper. So they looked beneath all the trains in the rail yard, so they opened every cabinet in the school, so they emptied all the boxes in the warehouse. I'm sorry, she told her husband. I thought he was in the pool. The helicopter's beam lit the water's black surface and confused the waves. Two helicopters and their beams like long fingers, three, and she could hear their thrum a mile off. No, no, these were stories about other people. He was certainly asleep somewhere, curled in a box where he'd been playing. While in his sleep, the air filled with bees and he hid behind the screen door. And then the bees were crawling over the screen, humming atop each other, bees upon bees on the screen he hid behind. A refrigerator lay on the junk pile. Inside it, a voice called to her, said, Hello. Said, Would someone please open the door? No, 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 his mother told herself. It's not like that. Not a box like that. Their lights were so bright, and they rose and fell along the horizon. And the bees chewed a hole in the screen, so first one came through, and then another, their thrumming grown loud and strange, and they were on his skin, the boy whimpering, afraid to swat them away. They are so fragile, she was thinking, remembering how holding him years ago, it had occurred to her that like a vase, he too might shatter on the floor. She weighed him in her arms, it would be so easy, like a costly vase. 
in the sun rising like a hot air balloon, and in its basket a child crying for its mother. So the waves glittered strangely in the new day while the helicopters stowed their searchlights, and then the bees were very loud, roaring over him, while helicopter hovered above the raft while it spit its rope over the sleeping boy. No, not like that, she thought, having dropped the vase on the floor, having dropped the mirror, having dropped the hair dryer and the pills and the scissors and the cell phone. No, not like that, while far away they strapped him in and hauled him up. And the empty raft bobbed on the waves. I slept all night long dreaming about bees, and when I woke up, and her husband swept the shards from the bathroom floor, and dreamed about vases. I'm in here, the little voice said. Here I am. I'm in here. If you'll just unlock the door, if you'll just untie me, if you'll just turn on the lights, drain the tub, open the garage door, move aside this rubble. How his face seemed when she thought of it, glassy. When days later, the life raft washed up on the beach, other children played inside it, pushing it far from shore, then riding it landwards again. Thank you very much. Sure. I really, really love this poem. Um, the first time you read it, the you know the book hadn't come out yet, and I had <coughs> waited and waited for this collection to come out just to see how this appeared on the page, um, because you make it seem so easy. I don't know if you realize that. Like, um, I after reading your work, I'm like, I can write a poem like that. I mean, look, look, he he made it seem so simple, and I sit down. I'm like, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> Did you want to talk a little bit about how these come into being? Um, yeah, it's a little mysterious to me, though. Um, you know, uh, I see, honestly, I, I kind of, it's so hard to talk about. I, I kind of pace around a lot. Mm-hmm. I write a line and I delete it. And then I stare at this blank screen and then I type another line and I delete it. This is what I did last night for about four hours. And then I, I delete it. And then after three hours, it's still a blank screen and, um, I've had a couple drinks and, uh, <clears throat> and I, I don't know what I'm doing. And, um, sometimes I go to bed and other times, uh, an idea sort of crystallizes. And in this case, the idea was what would happen if a kid, if a kid decided to, to float beside the boat? I mean, it didn't mean anything when I thought it, it was just, uh, that would be crazy. Um, <laughs> uh, kind of moment. There's no, no intention at the beginning of making any meaning. I don't even know what I'm going to write about or whether it's, but at a certain point I start writing it. And then you think, you know, you write that little scene where he's, where the ship is floating away. And, and then I stop. This sounds very practical and not, not, um, highfalutin, I guess. Then you think, well, what, what would his mother be thinking? And I write that. And, and then soon enough, I'm halfway through the poem, and then I start to think, what does this really mean? You know, it's only when I'm halfway through that I ask, like, what, what am I talking about here? Mm-hmm. And then I try to go back and make it mean something. So, so it's very linear then, because with something like this, I had imagined um, a small block that gets pulled out and pulled out. But this, I mean, you you seem to craft in a very linear fashion then. It is like that. It, it is like that. It sometimes feels a little bit, you remember the hat trick that magicians do where they pull a scarf out of a hat, but there's another scarf tied to it. Mm-hmm. They keep pulling it out and there are more and more scarves tied to the hat. That's, that's what it feels like to me, except I don't really know how, when the scarves are going <laughs> to stop coming out of the hat. I mean, it surprises me too. And sometimes no scarves come out or just one scarf. Um, um, the poems in, in this collection, especially, seem to make use of the page. They, they stretch out and spread yeah. out. Um, did, was this something more for sound that you that you did? Yes, it is. Um, that's really it is more it is for sound, and it's. I have this idea that the way the words appear on the page suggests something of the mind that's thinking the words. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, I love it. Yeah. And um, and I try to use the white space to suggest, or in this case, this poem has lots of little plus signs mm-hmm. between the sections where the perspectives change. Yes. And, and I like to try to think of those partly as helping the reader understand where the mind in the poem is hesitating, thinking about something and pushing forward and reaching for a word, but maybe not finding just the right word, but finding a different word. Mm-hmm. 
but that, that, that's that's how I how I imagine the white space working. I'm, it's not. Um, it looks a little chaotic, but it's not meant to feel chaotic. It's meant to feel. Um, it's meant to feel somehow organic to the poem. It does. It it doesn't feel chaotic. It feels um, very intentional. And organic. Yeah, I I love it. Um, could we read another one? Um, sure. The next one is a poem that terrified me the first time I heard it, and I hope that we can terrify some listeners as well. Um, Church okay. is on page thirty. Sure. Yeah, this is the, probably the only poem in this book that has any autobiographical anything, which is that when my father was dying, um, my sister saw him making. He was waving his arms around in the hospital bed, and my sister said, "What are you doing to him?" And he said, "I'm making a church." Wow! And um, she told me that story, and um, and I incorporated that into this poem. But um, I never saw it myself. I did, and you know, there, yeah, it's funny that how like I say there's no autobiography, and little things are in there. Um, there's a little, a really spooky little girl in this poem. <laughs> I remember thinking I've tried to write this poem and thinking, what am I going to do? The, you know, the page was blank and, and the blank page really is scary, you know, sometimes. And, uh, and I remember this little girl, I was about 11 years old or 10 years old and we were in Arizona in a gift shop and there was a girl about my age there who was startlingly beautiful. I mean, I remember just staring at her, you know, um, and my cousin was there, who was also a little girl, who was about my age. And my cousin said to me, when she grows up, she's going to be really beautiful. And I remember thinking, amen. <laughs> that was it. You know, I don't know why that memory stayed with me. <laughs> that was the end of the memory. But anyway, it's those two little little memories that were facts that started the poem. I'll just read it. Churches. In 1981... In a hotel gift shop outside Phoenix, Arizona, a little girl stood by the postcard rack, turning it gently. It creaked. She considered a picture of the desert, then looked around for her mother, who was elsewhere. She gave the rack a firm push so it spun gently on its axle, smiled, pushed it again, and the postcard rack wobbled on spindly legs. And soon she had it spinning so quickly the cards made long blurry streaks in their rotation, gasps of blue for sky, red for dirt, and then faster the girl slapping at it with her hand, grinning at me. And then a single postcard rose from the rack, spun in the air, and landed at my feet, a picture of a yawning canyon. And then another, handfuls of postcards, rising from the rack, turning in the air, while the girl laughed at her oblivious mother at the other end of the store bought a map or a box of fudge. And then the air was full of pictures, all of them shouting, Phoenix, 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 twirling and falling, until the empty postcard rack groaned once more tipped and crashed through the window. There ought to be a word that suggests how we're balanced at the very tip of history, and behind us everything speeds irretrievably away. It's called impermanence, the little girl said looking at the mess of postcards on the floor. It's called transience, she said, gently touching the broken window. It's called dying, she said. It was 1981, and the clerk ran from behind the counter, stood before us. The girl smiled sweetly. The postcard rack glittered in the sun and broken glass. He turned to me, and my face grew hot. I couldn't help it. I was blushing. In 2009, my father lay in a hospital bed, gesturing sweepingly with his hands. What are you doing? I asked him. I'm building a church, he said. You're making a church, I said. Can't you see, he said. He seemed to be patting something in the air, sculpting something, a roof that floated above him. The hospital room was quiet and white. What kind of a church is it? I'm not finished. Is it a church you remember? God damn it, he said. Can't you see I'm busy? It was 1988, and I stood in line for my diploma, and my father took a picture that I've lost now. 1984, and there we are around a campfire I can't remember. It was 2002, and the cells began to divide wrongly. First one deep in the wrist bone, then another turned hot and strange, deformed, humpback and fissured, queer and off-kilter, one after the other, though no one would know it for years. It's called dying, the girl said, while the postcard suspended in the air like a thousand days. 
I reached out to touch one, and then another, and then all at once they fell to the floor. Then the clerk said I was paying for the window. Where were my parents and who was going to pay if I didn't know where my parents were? And the girl smiled from behind the keychains, and her mother pursed her lips at the far end of the store, and the window had a hole in it through which a dry breeze came, and the postcards shifted on the floor. Years later, my father was still making that church with his hands. They do that, the nurse said, patting his head like he was a little boy. He was concentrating on his church, though, his hands shaping first what seemed to be the apse, then fluttering gently down the transepts. He sighed, heavily, frustrated, began again. Can I bring you anything else? the nurse asked. No, I said, thanks. Are you sure? She watched him tile the roof, watched his finger shape another arch, and then it was much later and he'd fallen asleep. Outside, snow covered up the cars. It's called forgetting, the little girl said, while the clerk watched me and I blushed. Until there's nothing left. And a breeze entered through the hole in the window. And then you're out of time, she said and shrugged. Some of the cards were face up on the floor, two burrows climbing a craggy slope, the Grand Canyon like a mouth carved in the earth, a nightlit tower like a needle. And I was sweating now, but I couldn't speak. And then I was running from the shop past the fountain and the check-in desk down the tiled hall to the hotel pool where my father lay on a plastic beach chair reading a book about churches. Sunlight flecked his chest. His hair was wet from swimming. What's the trouble? He asked. First, his cells were thick and soupy, clotted and aghast, and then they were spinning through the air, and it was 1986, and rain drummed on the roof, or it was snowing years later in Cleveland, his hands working the air, while the nurse stood in the doorway inside. Wind and sun, a bright day, a lovely day to lie by the hotel pool and read about how men spent lifetimes building them and never saw them finished. Thank you so much for reading that. This is, quite honestly, one of my favorite poems ever. Oh, thanks. Yes, it is. Um, and, and this is the perfect poem to try to get you to explain how you can layer these narratives so seamlessly. Um, I know that you say it's like, you know, pulling the scarves out of a hat, but it's, is there a lot of revision that goes into making these sequences fit together so perfectly? Oh my God! Yeah, there's okay. so. <laughs> Thank goodness. That's funny. I mean, I, I also wondered that about other poets. Do they revise? Of course they do. Um, yeah, there's so much stitching. It seems. Um, yeah, I, I write sections of them and then I take them apart and delete them and move them around and um, move them back again and then I send them to. Um, a couple of my friends and they write back and say the, you know, this part not working at all. And, you know, a lot of it is trying to figure out when you're, when you've said enough and when you're over explaining and, um, and, uh, yeah, there's so much, there's so much revision and, um, and, you know, my goal in the poem after, after I had figured out what had happened, my goal was to try to make it, to try to think about, you know, it's a poem about death, you know, um, and, and time and how time passes. And I was trying to sort of stitch them together in a way that made it seem like time was passing simultaneously in many different ways, you know, that, that there's sort of remembered time and imagined time and the real time for the father whose time is ending and, um, to try to stitch these little units together in, a, in, you know, maybe it's, it's as though, though several tunes are being played simultaneously was how I was trying to make it work. And each tune is a different kind of passage of time. And one of them, you know, there's that little girl. And, you know, when I began the poem, I just was trying to write honestly about what it was about that memory of that little girl that, why did that stay in my head, you know? But she changed very quickly and, and she became a kind of way in which a sort of Greek chorus, if the Greek chorus is articulating the thoughts of death, you absolutely. Know? Yeah, absolutely. That's how it felt, you know. But, you know, I think that's the way we use memories. You know, you remember something from your past, and then you ask yourself, why do you remember that? And and then that past starts to speak to you in a different way, mm-hmm. you know. And in this case, I think what happened was at a certain point in the revision process, I said, why do I remember that little girl? And then I thought, well, maybe remember her because she could tell me something about death. 
seems odd, you know. I mean, that little girl was just looking at keychains or whatever. Um, so was she written in, like, um, you know, originally had you intended when you set out to put this girl in the poem for her to be so present, or was she revised in? She was written first. I, I started with a little girl. Um, my father came second. I remember that. I remember finishing the little, the scene of the little girl in the postcard rack with the window, thinking, wow, I don't know where, where to go now. And my father had just died um, a few months previous, and I thought, previously, and I thought, well, what, what am I, what do I, what, what's on my mind with this? So I started to write that thing about the father. Much later, that comes much later in the poem, where he's making the churches and, um, and such, so much of the exercise of the writing this poem was trying to figure out what those two things had to do with each other. It's two very unlike things and, um, trying to discover that. You know, I used to be suspicious. My friend Joy Katz, who's a marvelous poet, used to tell me that writing a poem was a kind of discovering what it is that you mean. And I always thought, oh, come on, Joy. <laughs> She's right, you know. Now yeah. I think she's right. I, I do too, um, especially when you when you look back at these memories and you start to, when you get deep into it, you start to wonder, did this happen for the sole purpose of me making this connection or am I making this connection on my own? That's when <laughs> poetry gets into your head a little, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very suspicious of people who seem very mystical, but I do have these sort of mystical thoughts too. Like you. <laughs> um, I had I had wanted um, one last poem. It is another long one because I really admire the way you tackle the long form. Um, would you read Auto Wreck on page seventy six? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. This is a poem that also began from a little fact. The little fact was having stood in line behind a much older woman at the airport security right after 9-11, you know, yeah. and she couldn't, she'd forgotten her stupid driver's license. She <laughs> couldn't get through. And you're standing there and simultaneously feeling very sorry for this woman who was quite flustered. Um, I don't know what she's flustered about, except I think she's flustered about having forgotten her driver's license mm -hmm. and, um, and being irritated with her. Yeah. You know, because everybody's backed up now. And, uh, you know, anyway, but that's not what the poem is really about. That just begins it. Auto wreck. Far from your damage, snow is falling. It covers up the taxis and the buses. It covers the terminals and the airplanes on the runways and those parked at the gates. The old woman is saying that she has to catch her flight. She's sorry she doesn't have identification. It's at home on the table where she left it. She's sorry. Please let me through. And the young man shakes his head sadly and tries to explain again. And the woman drops her plastic shopping bag at the young man's feet. Her son is waiting for her in Cleveland, she says. He is very sick. He's in the hospital. And what can she do? Look at me. I'm an old woman. Do I look like a terrorist? And the young man says his supervisor is on his way, that he'll sort it out. But her plane is leaving, she says, and then she is crying because now her plane has probably left and there she is stuck in the airport with a storm coming on and her son in a bad way and they'll probably cancel all the late flights now. And the people behind her shift back and forth in line. The young man feels their angry eyes on him. Is there maybe someone I can call, he says. I can call someone for you, but the woman has turned around, has walked away. At his feet is her plastic bag. One, two, three, I said, and down we went. So the snow whipped our faces raw, and then we hit the ramp. The inner tube bounced us clear into the air, and for a moment we suspended there, your warm breath on my cheek, and both of us hollow-boned as girls. Oh, my brother, wake up. Don't you know a thousand satellites circle the Earth like gnats? I could find our old house on this screen. I could find this hospital window. I'm sorry about the snow. When they push the needle in, it buries you. And the plastic bag sat on a shelf in the lost luggage room, and all night long it became thick and heavy, so the plastic stretched over what grew inside it. So late at night, the airport was mostly empty, and in the bag, his heart was slowly beating. 
What will I do? She asks the ticket agent at the fab as the fabulous de-icers cover the wings with mist. What will I do as the plane rumbles through the snow as it rides the long, low runway far from her as it lifts gently into the air? What will I do as the hundred faces press against the windows and the plane tips dangerously then writes itself again, rising through the blizzard in his skull? Up and up through windlash and white. My son is in the hospital, she says, watching all this through the window. And some summers we lay on the balcony and played cards with girls from the neighborhood, and for days we did nothing but play cards, and when it grew too hot, we quarreled. Do not die, I was saying from the back of the line, while the old woman argued with the guard while she dropped her bag at his feet and shouted and shook her head, and the pained young man asked to move aside while he radioed for help. And we were all impatient. The line stopped dead and snow coming down. So when the old woman stormed off, I was relieved. And the man next to me sighed, said she wasn't no terrorist. They should just let her through. And the line moving again, I agreed. The truth is, my brother, you are asleep in your bed and in your head it is snowing. And I have already told you about sledding, and I have asked you about the satellites and those long summers when we played on the balcony with the girls whose names I can't remember. And the truth is, I am looking over the hospital window into the street, the laptop balance on my knees. And the truth is, I never heard a word that old woman said, though she looked half crazy, and still I think they should have let her through. I flew all night to get here, making up the story about the old woman. And still, you can't hear me, though the doctor says it's okay to talk. How can it hurt? I can find our old house on the laptop top screen. I can zoom in on it. There's the balcony seen from above, lights speckled and strange. I do not know who lives there now. Do you? There may be two boys, and above their heads, satellites circle the earth, taking pictures, which they send on down to us. And the next morning, the heart stopped beating. And when the young man slipped into the lost luggage room, he made sure no one saw him. And when he opened the bag, he found not my brother's heart. He found not my brother's body. He found not a pile of snow, ash. And up we flew on the inner tube and suspended there for the longest time. He found a child's blanket, yellow and blue, and on it a name was stitched. It was soft and in places tattered, something a mother might have made to cover up her child. <clears throat> Thank you again. Oh, I hope that when the listeners hear the way that you approach narrative, that they won't think that it is a skirt that needs to be hemmed up a little. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, it, the, the narrative impulse in your work is brilliant and the way that you handle it. I mean, maybe we shouldn't encourage other poets to do it because they're not going to do it as well. Oh, I don't know. They're <laughs> doing it better. <laughs> do you want to say anything about how that poem came into being other than the, the woman on the line? Well, again, I really don't know. I mean, there, I, you, you know, when one's writing poorly, badly, nothing is happening in my mind. And when I'm writing, when I think, when I feel like I'm writing well, I feel like those net satellites circling the earth like gnats, all these things going around in my head at once. And, you know, there's Google Earth and happening in my head and, um, and, and memories of inner tubing, which my wife made that I had to change in the poem a little bit because she's from Louisiana, had no idea what I was talking about when I was talking about going down a hill on an inner tube. Um, she, she said, we don't have hills in Louisiana. I, I really don't know. I do know that at a certain point when I was writing this poem, I was writing about the woman in line. And, uh, and I thought the poem was going to be about her going home to her child who was dying that's really what i thought the poem was going to be about and i somehow couldn't enter her mind well enough i felt blocked yeah. with her and then i thought well what if she's completely invented and somebody else's mind is really happening in this poem do you know what i mean yeah absolutely and um and that that that's that's what it, that that was for me the breakthrough when i was writing it was thinking oh she this poem isn't about her this poem is about the guy telling us about her. Mm. I remember writing that line, you know, I made up that story about the old woman. Mm. 
And that was, you know, sometimes you'd something, you, something happens at a home, you write a line like that and you realize, oh, you had it all wrong up until now. And now you figured it out and the rest of the poem just sort of comes out. And I often say that, uh, I often tell my students that, re- that poems that I really admire by other people often have places where they dramatically change gears or pivot or shift or turn. And um, often I think writing a poem yourself, the, the part that where, you, where it suddenly starts to work is the part where you realize how it just turned. Mm. Yeah, that, that's not easy to um, to execute, though, that, that type of shift. But you know, you do it well. Thanks. Um, so who are you reading now? Oh, wow. Um, I'm reading a lot of history and a lot of fiction. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm reading that new Edward St. Aubin novel, which is, uh, you know, hilarious, about literary prizes. I, I, I served for a while on the for many years, for seven years, as a National Book Critics Circle judge for poetry, and mm-hmm. it's been interesting to read a sort of satirical novel about poetry prizes, about which I have grown very, very um, cynical <laughs> um, after having been a judge. And that's a good organization. The NBCC is a great organization, but something about seven years judging those contests, I came out a little bit cynical about the importance that we put on prizes. And um, yeah, I've been reading that. I'm reading Stevie Smith. Okay. And I'm writing an essay right now about um, about why about political poetry and about why um, ambivalence, feeling strongly in conflicting directions, mm-hmm. might be a really valuable way that poetry can be political. That we like to think of political poetry as poetry of advocacy, but, but maybe that's not the most interesting kind of political poetry. That maybe poetry of deep political thought mm. is more I interesting. Like that. I like that a lot, actually, especially when you um, think about how poetry does think out loud and tries to sort things out. And if you could bring a reader into your own process or the speaker's process, it might help them figure things out for themselves. I think that's that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's, it's interesting. It's, I'm reading a lot of other sort of material around this right now, but thinking about the essays due in about three weeks and really thinking that, you know, one of the fa- failures, I think, of American politics or political discourse is a, it's a, it's a failure of complexity. Mm-hmm. You know, I, th- I, I often feel like I'm being fed through the news a very sort of s- series of sort of simple minded and conflicting political monologues. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and poetry doesn't do that, hopefully. <laughs> so why not think about political poetry that, that way as a way of counteracting that? Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that um, that the political and the social, they have become pretty intertwined right now, and I don't think they necessarily belong that way, um, but do you think that there's a big difference between political poetry and maybe poetry of social advocacy? I don't know. That's a really good question. Hey, thanks. <laughs> I guess it depends on how you define political. You know, having I've lived so much of my life in universities where definitions of political become so broad that I sometimes feel like they become meaningless. You know what I mean? All art is political. You know, okay, okay. you know, I guess so. If you're, if we're going to define political that way, but but um, but sometimes, sometimes I think that that real vast broadening of the word political. Um, sort of suck some of the power out of it. <laughs> but, I don't know. That's a really interesting question. Thanks. I'll think about it some more. Maybe I can come up with an answer because that is something that I've been trying to figure out because when, when you, um, one of my impulses to write is social advocacy because the suffering of others is just omnipresent in my mind, no matter what I do. So it, it's one of the, things that brings me to the page, but then I feel that that can easily be separated from the political, because if you're not asking for an action, you're just asking for, um, you know, negative capability, for empathy, for inhabiting a space that is not your own, then maybe those two can be different. Maybe they can, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Maybe they can be different. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe maybe asking for empathy um, or asking for emotional connection is asking for an action. Maybe. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that is a political. I mean, that is a that can be a political action. Mm. You know, and um, uh, I don't know. Um, I'd be excited to to read your essay. I hope that you link it up on your social media. <laughs> I'll try to. It's a book that I think the book won't be out for about a year and a half. Oh, okay. But 
and I'm sure they won't let me link it up. <laughs> I'll just go around thinking about it. <laughs> uh, for the final question, okay. um, what would you do if you couldn't write poetry? Oh, man. I think um, I spent the, the only epiphany I've ever had in my whole life um, was I was in the um, baths of Roman um, bath, you know, in England, the, the ancient baths the, they, that are, you know, 2,000 years old. And uh, I was sitting down there with, you know, no special interest in ancient Rome, uh, except that it seemed interesting to me. And, you know, sometimes I talk to my father um, about it. <laughs> Uh, because he was interested in that. And I had this epiphany, this thing sort of crashed over me where I, I suddenly felt as though I could see into a very deep past, you know, not, not in any mystical telepathic way, but, but just that I was suddenly feeling like I understood something about the passage of time being sitting down there by this ancient bath where the water was still running through these 2000 year old lead pipes and, and it was beginning to rain and, and, and I felt weirdly connected to ancient Rome. And then after that, I spent two years reading almost nothing but ancient Roman history and ancient literature. And um, it just became an obsession for two years. And I often think that if I couldn't be a poet, I would love to have been a scholar of classics of, of the great Latin classics. Mm. Um, Sounds amazing. I would have loved to have done that. But, you know, maybe it's not too late. No, it's never too late. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. Well, thanks for the really good questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, we're not going to take up any more of your time. Um, I do appreciate what you have given us. And um, everybody out there, have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.